Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. If you have your copy of God's Word, please join me in Philippians chapter 1. We will we'll make it to the end of chapter 1 today. Um, I feel like I stalled out last week. I felt like we had a lot to say from verse 27. But verse 27, as I shared with you last week, is really a part of, of one sentence that spans verse 27 down through verse 30. And i, I got to say, um, I'm so thankful for our worship team and the chance to sing together. There's, there's something special about that, and I think it's special because we're really just joining that ceaseless praise that's ongoing in heaven, right? And we gather on Sunday. Uh, we are already seated in the heavenlies, and sometimes it doesn't really feel that way because you have some struggles during the week, some adversity during the week, but when we can gather together and sing the gospel to one another, we're not just singing to God, as important as that is, Right? But Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says we're also singing to one another. That there's something special about being reminded of the magnitude of what Christ has accomplished in bringing a people together. And we're now going to sit under his word together, but we just sang the gospel together. And I don't know about you, but that, that refreshes my soul every Sunday to, to be reminded that King Jesus is on his throne, he's receiving the praise that he's due, and he's welcomed me alongside of a whole bunch of other people into that, that's exciting. And I don't know about you, but I, I hope you can join me in that. Now, that had nothing to do, well, it has a little bit to do, um, but it doesn't directly connect to our passage this morning. I just wanted to say that. It's awesome to be together and to sing together. So if, if by now you are in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and I hope you are, we're going to read again verses 27 through 30 and really consider the second half of, of this one long sentence, which Paul, Paul likes to write sentences that are paragraphs in length. And so we considered the first half of the paragraph last week. We'll consider the second par- half of the paragraph this week. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come, to see, come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we, we ask that you would find us receptive to your word today. Spirit of God, be our teacher. Uh, guide us into your truth We ask for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. When we come to verse 
27, Paul, as I mentioned last week, is transitioning from talking about how he expects to eventually make it out of prison and to see the believers himself in Philippi to instructing them about their present responsibilities. In other words, whether I'm in Philippi or I'm not in Philippi, here's something that I expect to hear about you. Everything that Paul will tell them from verse 27 down through verse 18 of chapter 2 falls under this category of sanctification. Now that you are saved, now that you belong to Christ, here's some things that you need to be doing to walk worthy of the gospel, to live out the gospel life, to conduct yourselves as a citizen. That's the command in verse 27. Live as a citizen walking worthy of the gospel. And he doesn't mean to live as a citizen of Rome or to live as a citizen of the United States. He means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. How? Walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul reminds the church they're citizens of God's kingdom and that their citizenship has come how? Through the preaching of the good news, the gospel about Christ, King Jesus, God's anointed and appointed Son who created all things and rules over all things and who has saved his church to reflect his glory to the watching world. So Paul says to the church at Philippi, when pressure comes for following Jesus, and it will, don't forget your citizenship. It's in that moment that you need to think about, to contemplate how it is that you can walk worthy of the very gospel that God used to bring you into his kingdom. And living worthy of the gospel means being part of a local church. It means standing firm with other believers in the one Holy Spirit, as we saw last week. It means striving or contending side by side as one person for the faith of the gospel. We contend so that people will hear the gospel and have the opportunity to believe the gospel, and we contend for the faith, the body of doctrine that is orthodox Christianity that is unchanging. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what culture says. The faith does not change to accommodate a changing culture. The church, the one church, is fixed on Christ as revealed in the unchanging Word of God. We don't modify it. We don't water it down. We don't change it. It is God's Word, and we stand firm upon it, right? That was all last week, so now you're caught up if you missed last week, and you're like, why didn't you do it that fast last week? (laughs) Sorry about that. So if we're going to do that, Verse 28, 29, and 30 show us the sort of perspective that we need to have to do it. So last week we saw that it takes backbone to be a Christian. We, we, the world does not need any wimpy Christians. The world needs believers with backbone. We've got to be tenacious. That was last week. But whether it's Christians in Philippi living in a Roman colony where the emperor was called Lord and Savior and they could not say that, or it's Christians living in the United States of America where policies and public opinion, newsflash, are increasingly hostile towards those who want to live for Jesus, we've got to stand in the spirit and contend for the faith together. We've got to be tenacious and to have gospel tenacity, we also need to have an eternal perspective. 
And that's our subject this morning. To have the tenacity that's required in the church, we must also have an eternal perspective. You see, church, we won't stand and we won't fight as we ought if our perspective is distorted. I'm sure many of you have seen the picture that's going to be on the screen right now, I think. Has everybody seen this picture? Y'all are like, nope. All right. So are you looking at a young lady or an old lady? Which do you, she sees both. Is anybody, all right, who just sees the young lady? Raise your hand. Okay. Who, who just sees the old lady? Raise your hand. All right, we got two. Who sees both? All right, praise God. All right. Um, I don't have like a laser pointer, so I can't help you out. But, but you can see both, I promise. And it depends on your perspective. Your perspective determines whether you're seeing a, a young lady or an old lady. And it's kind of like that in the church, right? We can move on from that slide because nobody's going to listen. All right. <laughs> if we could hide that slide, that'd be great. Let's kill the slide. All right. Praise God. It's in the sermon notes posted online. You can go look at it all afternoon, all right? The old lady's chin is resting on her chest, and it's long and pointy, okay? That'll help you find the old lady. Um, Perspective makes a big difference. And in the church, when we look at opposition, we can either cower in fear or try to modify our faith to be accepted because we think, you know what, if Jesus saved me, he saved me for a life that's just going to be full of, you know, popcorn and cotton candy and laughter and giggles. Or we can recognize that we have been called to be soldiers of the cross. There's an old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, right? We are soldiers in a fight. And in verses 28 through 30, Paul shows us the perspective we've got to have to courageously and consistently defend and advance the gospel no matter what opposition we face. And the first thing we see in verse 28 is this, to live worthy of the gospel. All right, we've been told what that looks like. We've got to stand in one spirit and we've got to contend as one man to do that. How do we do that? How do you stand up in a culture that's assaulting you and insulting you and making fun of you and telling you, well, you're a bigot because you believe that God designed people with a purpose? How do you do this? Well, first, we must not be frightened by our opponents, but assured that we have been saved by God. In verse 28, Paul commands us, don't be frightened. Not frightened in anything by our opponents. Paul is a realist. He knows that people living under the influence of Satan, people guided by their flesh and pride, will oppose the church. And they'll try all sorts of stuff to sideline us as Christians and as a church and as believers engaged in the gospel mission. So Paul says, literally, let nothing that the opposition does lead you to fear. What, what is most likely to cause you to fear? Do you have it in mind? Paul says, don't let anything cause you to fear. Not insults, not lies, not character assassination, not the threat of losing your job or missing out on a promotion, not new doctrines or theologies that contradict the gospel of salvation entirely by grace through Jesus, not threats, not torture, 
not imprisonment, not being left out of the cool club at the office. Don't let anything that they attempt make you afraid to engage the battle. And why shouldn't we fear? I mean, it's a fearful thing to be opposed. I I was 134 pounds soaking wet when I graduated high school. And I didn't enjoy anybody wanting to throw down. I I, I mean, what am I going to do about that? All I could do was outrun you. And I... And I did that a few times, right? It's, it's not fun to be opposed. But in this fight, Paul has already told us why we don't need to be afraid. And it's found back up in verse 21. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you die in this fight, you get Jesus. Your commander-in-chief will take good care of you. The battle would be terrifying if we didn't know the outcome of the fight. I love that song that we sing the battle is already won, right? We're fighting a battle that he's already won. We know the outcome of the fight. We don't go into the, to the battle going like, well, I wonder how this is going to shake out. We don't know the particulars of how we're going to get there, but we know how it's going to shake out. Jesus is going to win, and everybody with Jesus is going to win as well. The faith is fixed and final and our victory is assured. No one can overtake the victory that Jesus purchased with his blood and secured through his resurrection. So Jesus has conquered our greatest fear, the fear of death. So we are free to live for him. It's not about us. It's, excuse me. It is not us who have reason to fear, but rather those who oppose us should be afraid. They don't recognize they should be afraid, but what does Jesus say in Matthew 10, 28? Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I want to address the elephant in the room this morning, at this moment. There there are some in this room who are like, I've never faced opposition for following Jesus. What are you talking about being opposed? I I don't see anything. It is all cotton candy and bubble gum. The Christian life is easy all the time. Really? If you've never faced opposition for following Jesus, you ought to ask yourself, am I following Jesus? The the reason some believers don't face opposition is because they aren't standing and striving for the gospel, as they're commanded to do in verse 27. In fact, they're caving in on just about everything. When marriage gets tough, they excuse not loving their spouse well. When finances get tight, the first thing to go is the support of their local church. They're not ordering their lives to be financially vested in the kingdom of God. They're disconnected from a local church. They're more interested in their kids fitting in in this godless culture than they are in their kids following King Jesus. They are more interested in having a following on Facebook than they are in following the king of kings. They're more interested in being thought of as nice than they are being known as Christ. And as long as you try to have one foot in both worlds rather than go all in for the kingdom of God, you can probably avoid opposition for a season. But when you go all in for Christ in the gospel, you'll face adversity, you'll face attack. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. 
I am not saying for a moment that we should go out there trying to be jerks, right? Well, Pastor Daniel told me to just go out into the world and be mean to everybody. That's not what I'm saying, right? we got to be faithful to Christ, though. And if we're faithful to Christ, we need not be naive. Faithfulness to Christ will bring opposition. Faithfulness to Christ and applause in the world seldom go together. The world's not like, yay, look at that Jesus person. And if the world is like that for a season, it will always be temporary. The world will use you as you follow Christ for as long as you're useful to the world, and they will discard you as soon as they have to because you stood for Christ. Faithfulness to Christ brings opposition. We don't seek it out. It just happens because we live in a world where the default setting is rebellion against God and His Son. Check out Psalm 2. And we, the church, have been given the gospel message to take into such a world. And when we, when we are fearless in the face of opposition, when we sacrifice comfort and popularity and freedom, or even our lives for the sake of King Jesus and His gospel, and when the Spirit strengthens us to stand for Christ, look at what happens next in verse 28. You see it? This is a sign. When we are opposed, when we are fearless, it's a sign. It's a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. And where does that salvation come from? It comes from God. Have you ever thought about that? Your fearless faithfulness to Jesus serves as a bi-directional sign, a two-way sign. Your fearless faithfulness in the face of adversity and opposition confirms the unbelief and looming destruction that will come upon unbelievers and it assures you as a believer that you really are looking to God and you really will be saved on the last day. Have you thought about that? If you're in a fight, it's because God is real. You're really standing for something. You're standing for a God who has saved you. Being opposed in this world confirms that you're in a real battle and that God has really saved you. Some people struggle with assurance of their salvation. They're like, you know, when I was a child, I I prayed and I received Christ and I confessed my sins and I I was walking with Christ for a season and and now it's kind of hard. Well, if it's hard to follow Jesus, but you want to follow Jesus, newsflash, that means you belong to Jesus. That's a good evidence that you actually belong to him. If it's a cakewalk for you all the time, what's going on? Right? You're going to be opposed. The pulpit commentary says this, The courage of God's saints in the midst of dangers is a proof of His presence and favor. It's a token of our final victory in Christ. On the other hand, the inability of the opponents to shut the mouths of the church. Have you ever thought about that? The world has been set against the church for more than 2,000 years and the world still hasn't taken out the church. That's incredible to me. They hate God. They hate Christ. They hate His people. I mean, it's pretty obvious what they need to do to eliminate us, but they still haven't eliminated us. Why can't the world conquer the church? Because there's a power that unites the church and creates the church that is greater than any power in the world. 
that the world still hasn't won is a clear sign that they are faced with a power that they can't conquer. It's a power that they will one day face unless they repent, which will end in their destruction. Now, the word destruction, verse 28, is an important word. Some have argued in our modern day that destruction suggests that those who oppose Christ and remain opposed to Christ will not spend an everlasting and conscious eternity in hell, but they will simply cease to exist. This theological view is called annihilationism. That is not what the word means. Destroyed does not mean eliminated or cease to exist. If I am involved, if I, if I leave today, God forbid, and hop on Peters Creek Road and try to make a left, and I didn't see the Big Mac truck coming down the way, and I was involved in a car crash, and I walked away without a scratch. I told you I walked away without a scratch, but my car was absolutely destroyed. None of you would think my car ceased to exist, would you? That's, that's what the meaning of destruction is. It, it doesn't mean that my car disappeared or ceased to exist. You would understand rather that my car was totaled, never again to be used for its intended purpose, and the purpose of my little five-speed Mazda 3 is speed. People were made to know and enjoy God forever. But if they reject and resist the invitation to be redeemed through Christ, they will fulfill their purpose of glorifying God in another way. They won't enjoy it, but they will demonstrate that God is real, that He's holy, and that sin against an infinite God has eternal consequences. And they will do so in a place of destruction and torment called hell. Mark chapter 9, 48, Jesus alludes to the prophecies of Isaiah 66 where, there, where we learn there will be a new heavens and a new earth, but not all will be able to enjoy that new creation. Rather, as Jesus summarizes it, some will be, be put into hell. By the way, Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. You say, well, I don't believe in that hell stuff. Well, then you don't believe in Jesus, at least not the Jesus of the Bible. And he, what does he say? In this place called hell, their worm, meaning their body, does not die, and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 25, we learn there will be two groups of people, right? The sheep belonging to Jesus and the goats to whom Jesus will say, as we read in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. Then in verse 46, Jesus adds, this, the goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1-9, Paul says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Church, hell is real. The consequences of unbelief in the Son of God are everlasting. We have a mission. We have a king to follow and a gospel to proclaim, and eternity hangs in the balance. Biblically, destruction is not ceasing to exist. It is an everlasting destination of doom. It is to abide forever in God's righteous wrath towards sin. When we are fearless in the face of those who oppose Christ and the gospel, it confirms two things. 
It confirms that we have been saved and that that is not from ourselves. It is totally from God. And it confirms, secondly, that our opponents are headed for destruction unless they repent and believe in Jesus. So church, to live worthy of the gospel, we've got to be fearless in the face of opposition and we've got to be assured that our standing is in the salvation of God. And then secondly, after we recognize that being opposed confirms that we're in an actual battle, we're in a real dogfight. After we see that, the next thing we need to do is we need to see suffering for the gospel as God's gracious confirmation of our heavenly citizenship. We need to see suffering for the gospel as God's confirmation of our heavenly citizenship. Verse 29 begins with the word for. Paul here is going to give us a reason for being fearless in the face of opposition. And it's a reason that we really need to grasp this morning. Are you ready for the reason? Here it is. Suffering for the sake of Christ, which happens when we stand together in the Spirit and strive side by side for the gospel. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift from God. Did you, did you see that in the text? Those who live as citizens of heaven will suffer in this life, and this has been granted for the sake of Christ, verse 29. Just two verses earlier, Paul says we are to live worthy of the gospel, and now he speaks of suffering for the sake of Christ. Don't miss the connection. To live worthy of the gospel is to live for the sake of Christ. To suffer for the sake of the gospel is to suffer for the sake of Christ. To live for Jesus, then, we must live for the gospel. And when we live for the gospel, suffering for the sake of Christ will come. And it isn't just overcoming suffering in a foreign land on mission somewhere that is for the sake of Christ. It's all kinds of suffering. Because for the believer, all kinds of suffering are a threat to derail you from faithfulness to Christ. Silva says this, for the person whose life is committed in its totality to the service of Jesus, every affliction and every frustration becomes an obstacle to the goal of serving Christ. So every challenge. This morning you say, well, I'm not going on the mission trip. Well, I'm not a Gideon that's going to put Bibles in hotel rooms this coming week. I, I, I am not serving in North Africa, Middle East, or in Southeast Asia, or in a place where you risk your life uh, to proclaim the gospel. So I, I don't have any opportunity to, to be opposed. Let me tell you, church, yes, you do. Ca- caring for an ailing parent or spouse is hard gospel work. When you give up because it's hard and you fail to honor mom and dad or you fail to go the distance with your spouse because it's tough, the world sees that. But, but I remember when, when Stacy and I were in Raleigh, we, we've been married 23 years now. I can do the math. We were, we were married in 2000, so you just add a year and it's 2023, so it's, it's, it's been 23 years. Uh, but we were, we were next door neighbors, uh, we were in like a row house, townhouse, and, and our neighbor to the left, she just had a Rolodex of boyfriends rolling through her house all the time, and one time she said to me, I just don't know how you and Stacy just, just do it, how you stay faithful. I said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Your faithfulness 
in hard times and hard seasons is a witness to Christ. Your willingness to go the distance in caring for a parent or a spouse or a grandparent or loving your neighbor who is an absolute knuckleheaded nuisance, that's adversity that you have an opportunity to respond as Christ would respond or, or not. Every little thing in your life is a gracious opportunity to glorify the living Lord Jesus. Now, to be sure that, that we believe in Jesus, verse 29, and are saved is a gift of God's grace. But so too, verse 29 tells us, is our suffering. To suffer as soldiers of Jesus is a gift from God. It has been granted by God. The word granted is the verbal form of the word grace. God has graced you with suffering for the sake of Christ. Why? So that we might prove Jesus is worth it. So that we might prove to a world that also suffers that Jesus is more to us than a comfortable life or even than life itself. You say, I've never heard this gospel before. What in the world is this suffering stuff? I just heard repent, turn to Jesus, and live your best life now. It's going to be great. And there's a sense in which that's true. It will be great. It'll be great because you'll have the assurance you'll be with Christ. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he, the reason you need him to never leave you nor forsake you in this life is you got, you're going to have some tough times to walk through. This message is so different from what we hear from Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or Kenneth Copeland and many others who say that if people have faith in God, God will give them security and prosperity in this present life. If you hear someone say, if you trust in God, he's going to give you security and prosperity in this life, cut off the radio, the TV, the podcast, stop it, turn it off, shut it down, never listen to him again. It's not what Paul says. Is not what the Bible says. If you're following a crucified Savior, don't be surprised to get crucified in this world. Our hope is not prosperity in this lifetime. Our hope is the resurrection from the dead. He will raise us up. We will dwell with Him forever. And from this day to that day, Jesus is enough. Paul says people who have faith in Jesus can be fearless in the face of opposition because they know living for Jesus will bring suffering for Jesus. We're not surprised when we suffer. God already told us it was going to happen. In this lifetime, suffering for the sake of Jesus is a promised grace of God. God gives not only the grace of believing, but of suffering for the sake of Christ. In verse 29, Paul says, on behalf of Jesus or for the sake of Jesus, two times in one verse. We've been given grace from God to believe in Jesus. And one evidence that we believe in Jesus is that we've been given the grace of suffering for Him. Now, as we've covered, that suffering can come in a variety of forms, but it will come. And when it does, what is our mission? It is to press on with the assurance that God has saved us and He's given us a glorious opportunity to live, not for our sake, but for the sake of our King. The one who suffered for the church is glorified in churches willing to suffer for him. As Marita and Chan clarify, this is important, we don't suffer in the same way as Jesus. We know that, right? Jesus suffered and died an atoning death. He, he paid for sin. 
in his death. We cannot pay for anyone's sins. There's only one person who can pay for sins, and that's the crucified and risen King Jesus. We can't pay for anyone's sins, but we can point others to the one who did by how we face suffering. They go on to say this, our symbol for life and ministry is a cross. Our symbol for life and ministry is a cross, not a recliner, not a big truck, not a flat screen, not a first-class ticket on the airplane, and not plush golf courses. You may have those things, and they may be enjoyed appropriately at times, but the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow Him down the road to Calvary. And this is a gracious gift from God. For all other roads lead to destruction. Beloved, if you've been saved, you're going to be about the gospel. And if you're about the gospel, you will be opposed. It's that simple. Suffering for the king who suffered for us is a confirming grace that God has given to all Christians in all generations until King Jesus returns. Jesus says in Matthew seven fourteen, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, 13 and 14, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, listen to this, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul knows what it's like to suffer for the sake of the gospel, doesn't he? Look at verse 30. He's not giving us instructions about something that he doesn't understand. This is not theoretical for Paul. In verse 30, he tells us that the conflict that's brewing in Philippi is the very same conflict or struggle that they saw him face. When? When did they see Paul face this struggle? Was it not when he founded the church at Philippi and he was beaten and imprisoned for his faith in Christ? Now, the Philippians are not all in prison, but perhaps some of them are, and the costs of following Jesus are rising, and Paul wants them to know whether he was imprisoned in Philippi but under the authority of Rome or he's sitting in a Roman prison. He knows what they're facing, and it's not atypical. Paul wants us to know, as Marita and Chan put it, the God who has given us salvation has with that gift also graced us to be Christ's people in the world which means that we will suffer for Christ's sake just as he did for ours. Church, you can't live for Christ or be assured by Christ for as long as you're looking for a Christianity of convenience and comfort. Let me share that. Let me say that one more time. We live in a world, we live in a microwave world, don't we? I mean, it takes too long for the microwave to make, make my oatmeal now. I just want my oatmeal to like, just pull it out of the pantry hot, ready to eat it. We, we don't want crock pots. I mean, it tastes good, right? But we don't want to wait around for the crock pot meal. It just takes too long. We live in a society and a culture of convenience and comfort. 
And the degree to which we have to fight through that in order to be faithful to Christ, I think, is greater than we even realize. We cannot live for Christ or be assured by Christ. Why are so many Christians struggling with assurance? Because they haven't done anything that costs them anything for Jesus in a long time. Do something costly for the sake of Christ. Get out of your comfort zone and share the gospel. And then watch the Spirit of God assure you as you pursue the mission of God because you're doing something for the sake of the King, not for the sake of comfort or convenience. Beloved, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to be graced with believing and suffering for Jesus. It is so critically important that we get this. We know we are engaged in the work of Jesus not when things come easily, not even when hundreds or thousands show up for an event or when people give us likes and mentions and follows and shout outs. We are assured in our standing with Christ and in our labor for his sake, not when we have success in the world as the world defines it, but rather when Jesus, when living for Jesus is mixed with suffering, a suffering we gladly endure for the sake of our King. Loving our enemies, if necessary, to death. Just as Jesus did for us. So this morning, how do I want to apply this text? I want to call you to a fresh perspective on the Christian life. Whatever struggling you're facing, whatever adversity you're facing, whether it's a medical challenge, a marital challenge, a work challenge, I want to ask you this. What is it going to look like to walk worthy of the gospel for the sake of your king in your situation? What is it going to look like to get yourself out of the way, to die daily, and to take up your cross and prize King Jesus? I don't know what that situation is, but the Spirit of God who's in this room sure does. And He is urging you on the authority of God's Word to die to self and come alive to King Jesus, no matter what it costs. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace of believing in Jesus and for the grace of suffering for him. And God, we ask, knowing that you love us more than we could imagine, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and you would enable us and empower us to suffer well for the glory of Christ. And God, in the midst of the suffering, that you would fill us with the joy of life everlasting in Christ. God, that, that it's not suffering and being miserable. Uh, it is suffering and knowing that we are on mission for a king who's conquered our greatest fear and our greatest enemy. And we thank you for it. God, however you would choose to move in this place, have your will and your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.